You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. By the time you uh, listen to this, uh, Christmas will be over and, uh, you know, we will be on our way to the last week of the year. And that gives us a lot to reflect upon. But before we do that, let's just remind you that there is a website associated with this program at wealthformula.com. Lots of resources there. And also, uh, it's the place where you go to sign up for our various groups, including our accredited investor club. If you're interested and are accredited, you can join and get onboarded there. Also, Uh, There is a course that people are interested, if people are interested in, that allows you to get sort of deeper into these matters that we talk about on Wealth Formula uh, related to personal finance. And uh, that course is called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth. And it is a course, but one of the great values of it, what I've found and really hadn't anticipated this, and perhaps the greater significance of getting that course is you get to be part of this community, which we call Wealth Formula Network. Bi-weekly Zoom calls. We have a Facebook group. Anyway, really great online community and Zoom community. Check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, you know, going back to this being the uh, now the last week of the year, you know, every time the end of the year happens, I don't know about you, but I get very... Uh, I get very thoughtful about what's happened in the last year and what, you know, what's going on around me and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's hard to look at last year alone. I mean, I have to think about the last few years and the last few years have been absolutely bonkers. Of course, if you'd told me in mid 2019 that a global pandemic uh, would happen and that would practically paralyze you know, the economy and global trade for the next two years, I would have never believed it. Of course. I mean, who would have been like, oh yeah, that, that sounds about right. That could happen in the United States. But, and you know, what's funny though is during that period of time when it happened, um, there was even stranger things in some regards, (laughs) you know, during 20 and 21, uh, the stock and real estate markets actually, did great. I mean, historically, low interest rates made cheap money abundant for investors. And for that reason, the markets paradoxically rose as the real economy actually shrunk. And so that's a weird, weird phenomenon, but it's something we're starting to see more and more. And it's what Nomi Prinz, who uh, I had uh, previously interviewed on this show, uh, called the Great Distortion. She wrote an entire book about this idea, ultimately, of decoupling of the financial markets with reality. And while monetary uh, policy made asset prices rise, uh, fiscal policy also contributed to inflation as well. Certainly, supply chains created problems of low supply, of course, and but helicopter money gave people extra money to spend and a huge injection of liquidity directly into Main Street. I mean, that's the facts, right? And the fact that in the fact when we look at that, we actually shouldn't be very surprised that we ended up with super high inflation. It simply 
you know, policy chickens coming home to roost. That's really what it is. And when there is high inflation, what happens next? Well, of course, interest rates must go up to follow. And that is where we are. What happens next really is uh, obviously the big question, right? Like everybody wishes they know what would happen next. The the problem is that uh, what we've just experienced, again, has never uh, never really happened before either, which is that the Fed raised interest rates over, you know, whatever, four or five hundred percent in just nine months. I mean, there's just no way that's a predictable situation either. It's kind of crazy. Uh, usually, a small change in interest rates is actually uh, not accounted for um, in the economy for about six months. In other words, the ripple effects of a interest rate hike or or lowering of interest rates really doesn't take um, significant hold on the economy until six months later. Now, this happened all nine months, and we've had rate increases even last month, and we have no idea what's going to happen. What we do know is that there's a pretty darn good chance that we will have a deep recession. But, you know, the good news is, in many ways, and it depends on what you do for a living and stuff, but as investors... Uh, that that actually may not be the worst thing in the world, right? Often in a recession, you have a situation where assets become distressed and you can sometimes get great deals on those. And in fact, uh, some of the opportunities that we uh, participated in shortly after COVID, well, gosh, those were some of the most you know profitable or will be the most profitable properties that we purchased because everybody was scared and and you know, they stop buying. But the thing to remember is that, you know, interest rates going up is not the problem, right? Like the problem is not the actual interest rates being high. It's the volatility. And I keep talking about this. The Volatility is what's killing the markets. People have made money throughout all sorts of interest rates. I mean, double digit interest rates and people were still making money. You know, it's just, we just need a stable, stable interest rate environment, and we'll be back into business, in my opinion. Anyway, that's my take on where we are now and what may happen, but obviously I am, you know, a amateur economist, and as Yogi Berra would say, it's, it's tough to make predictions, uh, especially about the future. Uh, that's a good one, right? Uh, anyway, all we can do really right now is to watch and wait, hopefully educate ourselves a little bit, and that's what this show is all about is trying to educate ourselves a little bit. And today we have one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet on these topics. His name is Jim Rickards, and he's a prolific author, a very lucid thinker. And uh, we'll have a nice discussion with him right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is uh, Wealth of Knowledge. He's been on the show before. He's the editor of Strategic Intelligence, uh, which is a financial newsletter uh, to which I subscribe. He's also a New York Times bestselling author and economist. Uh, You may recall the books, uh, The New Great Depression, and then there was The Road to Ruin. Uh, The most recent book, though, uh, is sold out how broken supply chains surging inflation and political instability will sink the global economy jim welcome jim rickards welcome to our show again thank you Buck. great to be with you so uh yeah you know last time i talked to you was actually before covid 
<laughs> and a lot has changed uh, oh, yeah. since that time. You know, the big elephant in the room ultimately is, um, you know, what's going on with inflation? Why is inflation as high as it is? And where is this ultimately going to lead? And I know uh, you have addressed this in the context of uh, supply chains a little bit in your book. Do you want to? Do you want to start out with kind of giving us a, a broad perspective on, um, you know, why we're at where we're at right now? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, of course, the, the book is sold out. Uh, it's about the supply chain disruption. It was around this time last year, I think November 2021, um, when I talked to my editor and we outlined the book. Of course, at that time, you go back a year, uh, the headlines were, you know, full of uh, supply chain shortages, bare shelves, uh, the paper goods aisles were cleared out. Um, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, East Germany in the 1950s, but uh, by American standards, it was um pretty severe. We hadn't seen anything like it since, um, well, certainly in gasoline, the oil crisis in 1974. Before that, I think you'd have to go back to World War II and when you had ration coupons and uh, you, know, you could buy gas every other day or groceries and so forth. But uh, for two generations of Americans, um, this is something they had never seen before. Uh, and again, like I say, it, it was sort of like one day it would be the paper goods. Next day you go back to the store. They might not have your favorite, uh, you know, tomato sauce or corn chips or or soap, whatever it was. But it was always something, um, and it persisted. So we we organized the book. It has three chapters specifically on the supply chain. So chapter one is mostly anecdotal. It tells stories about the supply chain. Uh, for example, there's a famous place in New York called Junior's Cheesecake. They make this world famous cheesecake. Um, well, they were out because. Cheesecake is 85% cream cheese and they couldn't get cream cheese. So they were, they couldn't make their, their cheesecakes. I'm sure that's uh, disappointed uh, some people in terms of dessert, but then there were more serious episodes uh, last April, May, but even continuing today, the baby formula shortage, I mean, that jeopardized the health of infants and was highly distressing to mothers and it continues. So we, um, so that's kind of chapter one. Chapter two, uh, we, we take a deep dive with a lot of data to back it up in terms of why the supply chain broke. It's one thing to go to the store and not see what you want. And people got that. I mean, it was kind of in your face. But then they said, well, well why? This is America. It's 21st century. Uh, why are we running out of goods on a selected basis? And we, we get the answers there. Uh, the war in Ukraine was part of it. The pandemic was part of it. But the origin really goes back actually to the Trump administration and the trade war on China. We have the data to back that up so we can show this really. The breakdown started around 2018, but then it just kept getting worse. And then chapter three, we take the story forward. We explain why the supply chain, there, there are always supply chains, but sure. it, it, it's disruptive right now why it will come back, but it will not be the same. You're going to have a very different world. And that's important from an investor's perspective, because whenever you have a, you know, physicists call that a phase transition or you can call it a paradigm shift, whatever you like, you go from one, what I call supply chain 1.0 to supply chain 2.0, it'll still be around, but it'll be different. But that produces winners and losers. And we identify the countries and the brands and the products that will be uh, full in either category. So obviously, uh, pretty simple from an investment point of view, avoid the losers and go for the winners. But I make the point that even in financial distress, you can still make a lot of money if you can see it coming and mm -hmm. kind of act accordingly. Sure. But then uh, after that discussion, my editor said, well, Jim, you know, we, the supply chain is causing inflation. So we have to have a chapter on inflation. I said, of course we do. Right. Yeah. I thought of that and we absolutely will do that. I said, I'll write it, but I'm also going to write a chapter on deflation because that's what people don't see coming. There's a deflation disinflation right behind 
the current inflation. Um, and we talk about that as well. So that's kind of an overview yeah. of the book. I start with, uh, actually in the introduction, before you even get to chapter one, I tell the story of a, uh, a shipwreck off the coast of Turkey uh, in a place called Ulubarun on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey that's been dated to the late Bronze Age, around 1200 BC. Um, and in that vessel, a sponge diver found it by accident. He saw a funny looking jar, said it's got ears. Well, experts knew that the ears were handles, you know, to, to move the jar. He notified the authorities. They did 10 years of underwater excavation, underwater archaeology, and it was the greatest preserved cargo from the Bronze Age ever discovered. Um, and in that, they found, um, for example, uh, amber, which comes from the Baltic Sea, uh, gold, which at the time came from Sudan, uh, weapons, which would have come from present-day Syria and Israel, Phoenicia at the time, Damascus, and olive oil and figs and things, uh, foodstuffs uh, uh, food that would have come from Greece or Italy. And there was even a carving of a Queen Nefertiti that was probably on its way to Alexandria. But the point is, in this one vessel, there were goods from almost the Arctic Circle to almost the equator, and from as far east as Persia at the time, present-day Iran, as far west as Spain. And that's an area of 5 million square miles all on this one vessel. And they were picking stuff up and dropping things off as they went along. So I make the point that supply chains are at least, go back at least to the Bronze Age, if not further. They're always around, but they're taking new new form. Uh, and that's, what, um, that's what's coming. That's what we talk about in the book. So I presume your thesis is ultimately, obviously, that, that supply chains are the major factor uh, for the inflation that we're seeing right now. And if that's the case, what's going on with supply chains now? And does that uh, potentially correct or potentially even overcorrect the problem, um, you know, in the coming months or years? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, um, the, the, the inflation's here, it's evident, and uh, you know, again, it's in your face. You see it at the gas station. You see it in the meat counter and the dairy and eggs and uh, clothing and a lot of other things. And this really started, the inflation started in um, really the middle of 2021. Uh, that's back when Jay Powell was saying, you know, chairman of the Fed, Federal Reserve was saying it's you know, transitory, transitory. Well, by November 2021, he gave up. He was actually testifying uh, for Congress. He said, it's time to retire the word transitory. So even Jay Powell recognized the persistence of inflation. And then it only got worse from there. And the readings throughout most of 2022 were the highest in 40 years. You'd have to go back to 1982, even 1981 to find higher inflation. So that's real. It's persistent. And, um, and again, people know it. They don't, they don't need to be told that they see it every day. Um, but here's the, here's the problem. Inflation can come from two sources, broadly speaking. One is the supply side. It's called cost push inflation. The cost of supply goes up and it gets pushed on to consumers. That's what we're experiencing. That's what's going on now. Energy shortages, transportation, uh, log jams, um, again, shortage of goods. So people obviously pay more for what they can get. Um, so the inflation we're seeing now is from the supply side. Now, inflation can also come from the demand side, from consumers, and that's mainly psychological. It involves a consumer saying, you know, gee, I was thinking of getting a new, you know, washing machine or couch or suit of clothes, whatever. Uh, what's the hurry? But if you think prices are going up, you might run right out and get it today. Like, hey, I'm going to get it now because I'm worried the price is going to go up. And that's called demand pull inflation. You're pulling the demand forward by anticipating higher prices and you want to get something today. So two different kinds of inflation, but very different dynamics. 
Now, in the 1970s, we had an interesting sequence from one to the other. It started out from the supply side. It was the Arab oil embargo after the Arab-Israeli war in 2000, sorry, 1973. The Arab oil embargo stretched into 1974. Oil prices quadrupled. They went from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel. Doesn't sound a lot, a lot from to, by today's standards, but it was a lot at the time. And when you multiply anything by four, that's a shock. So, uh, and that caused the initial bout of inflation um, and if you remember, Jerry Ford was president and Alan Greenspan was in the Council of Economic Advisors, and they were touting these buttons that said win, W-I-N. It's so for whip inflation now. We run this big anti-inflation campaign. The problem was that the high oil prices threw us into a recession, a bad one. The stock market crashed in 1974, got hit with a recession, unemployment went up, the inflation kind of disappeared briefly. But then it came back because the oil prices continued to go higher. Nixon had gone off gold, uh, and then we had two really incompetent chairs of the Federal Reserve, Arthur Burns and G. William Miller. They put the pedal to the metal in terms of money supply. And then the inflation psychology did tip over into the demand side, went from the supply side to the demand side. I remember very well, I started my career at the time I was working at a I was International Tax Council, Citibank in the late 70s. They would just give you a raise. You didn't even have to ask. They would just give you, hey, here's, here's another $20,000 or $30,000, which was a lot of money at the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But the point is they were worried you were going to quit and take another job or whatever. That ran out of control. And then famously, Paul Volcker comes in, takes interest rates to 20%, destroys the inflation. So there you had both. You had supply side morphed into the demand side, and Volcker snuffed it out with high interest rates. Now, here we are today. The inflation has come from the supply side. That's real enough. But it has not taken off on the demand side. The investor psychology has not changed. People are very fearful. They're nervous, a lot of uncertainty. They're not spending money. They're, they're spending some, actually, but but not um, spending as much. Their credit cards are maxed out. Uh, we're probably heading into a recession, kind of starting right now. And the point is, it hasn't that demand what's called a demand pull inflation has not taken over. Now, here's the problem. Jay Powell, chairman of the Fed, is determined to eliminate the inflation. He wants to get rid of the supply side inflation that I just described. But the Fed can't do anything about the supply side. They don't uh, drill for oil. They don't drive trucks. They don't have farms. They don't lease crops. They don't do anything that you need to deal with supply shortages and supply chain disruptions. The only thing they can do is raise interest rates so high that you can destroy demand. And then, yeah, that'll play out on the supply side. Because as I say, if you know, if, uh, maybe the price of filling up your Ford F-150 truck has doubled from $75 to $150, that's inflation. But if your business fails and you get fired and you're sitting home and you don't buy any gas, uh, that's a that's a different kind of outcome. That's um, that that will bring prices down a lot. But so here's the question: How much how much demand destruction do you have to do to squash inflation from the supply side? The answer, yeah, you know, if it were on the demand side, it's different. But to squash it on the supply side, using demand destruction. You have to destroy the economy. You have to basically crush demand, raise interest rates very high, um, and then that'll feed back to the supply side eventually. You know, the old uh, saying, the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices. When they're high enough, long enough, the costs get too high and people and businesses fail. So that's the path the Fed is on right now. There's the, you're talking about the, the supply side. Um, you know, obviously with the uh, supply chain issues that we dealt with during COVID um, and 
thereafter. That was a big part of it. Um, in addition to everything that you've said, is there uh, is it your sense that the supply side itself could naturally uh, increase um, just because things are back or getting back to normal and that supply chains are less uh, you know volatile and that in and of itself could potentially um, you know help with the inflationary pressures? Uh, short answer is no. Now I think it's important to make the point that, as I said before, this is whack-a-mole. It's not, it's not every shelf is bare all the time, but it's popping up in di- different places. But a you know, really good question, Buck. And uh, I'm hearing this a little bit lately. It's like, well, Jim, you know, it's great that you have a book on the supply chain, but, you know, that was last year's story. The supply chain crisis is over. Kind of interesting, but, um, it, you know, it, it's over and stuff is starting to come through. That is not true. Some things, yeah, it has improved a little bit. Uh, uh, container um, prices are down. Shipping lanes are less jammed than they were this time last year. Vessel capacity is back. It's it's actually cheaper. You can get it. So there are certain aspects of the supply chain that you can point to that have that are much improved. But the problem is the well the problem the supply chain disruption has just moved to different part of these parts of the supply. Chain. Let me give you a concrete example. That literally this week this is this is brand new, just to illustrate my point. So right now. Go down to your, you know, your Walgreens, your CBS, your Rite Aid, or wherever your local pharmacy is. You can't get, or else the shelves will be greatly depleted. But you can't get Tylenol, ibuprofen, Motrin. There's a over-the-counter medicine called Tamiflu. When I was a kid, we called it cough medicine, but basically relieve some flu-like symptoms. Okay, you can't get those. Why is that? Well, the answer is um, now. I'll just digress a little bit, but you know, China has had this zero COVID policy, which makes no sense. I mean, the the lockdowns, the masks, all that, none of that stuff works. The vaccines don't work. They don't even have a very good vaccine and our vaccines don't work either. So what's the point? But they've been doing that. They've been locking down Shanghai, a city of 26 million people, locked down Beijing, a city of 22 million people. And they've been doing this for several years. Well, finally, it got to the breaking point. Uh, November 24th, end of November, there were riots, there were demonstrations. People went out, they tore down the COVID testing centers, which are basically tents every, every three blocks. They tore those down, broke down barricades, um, you know, riots in the streets. They had to put it down with, you know, tear gas and water cannons and, and worse. A lot of people got arrested. Um, but this was a, uh, this is kind of an existential threat to the leadership of the Communist Party of China. This reminded them of the Tiananmen Square um, demonstrations. They weren't riots. Uh, there were demonstrations in uh, 1989 which were ended with a massacre of, uh, they don't even know how many people, but several thousand people were killed when they put that uh, demonstration down. Um, so all of a sudden the leadership in China does a 180. They're like, uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, we've had such success. This is all lies, but this is what they say. We've had such success with zero COVID that we're now in a position to ease up. So now if you test positive, they're like, hey, just stay home. We're not going to you know, weld a steel I-beam to your door to lock you and make you a prisoner. Um, we're not going to lock down whole cities. We're not going to require you to be tested every two days. Um, we're just going to do, a, we're going to ease up on the zero COVID policy that has implications in terms of where the virus goes from here. Uh, but I, mean, I can tell you just briefly there, the math is pretty simple. There are 1.4 billion people in China. If you, if you let the virus rip, you end zero COVID, you just let this thing rip. Um, you're going to get at least a 30% infection rate. That's based on data from the U S and Europe could be higher, but let's just say 30% to be conservative. 
30% of 1.4 billion people is 420 million people. The fatality rate is about a quarter of 1%. So good news is 99.75% survival rate, but a quarter of 1% will die, maybe more, but at least that many. Well, one quarter of 1% of 420 million is over a million people. If you let this virus ship, you're going to have a million people dead and tens of millions more in the hospital. The problem is China doesn't have the intensive care units, the oxygen, the hospital beds, and all the and the cl- uh, clinical facilities that we have in the United States. Ours were stressed. Well, China is going to be super stressed because they don't have them. Now, the Chinese people are smart enough to know this. They can see this coming. So guess what they're doing? They're running down to their drugstores and they're buying all the ibuprofen and the Tamiflu and the um, Advil they can get because they know they're going to have to self-medicate when this virus gets out of control because they don't have the medical facilities to deal with it. Well, guess what? We get 90% of our stuff from China. All those brands I just described, maybe the brands are different, but the medicine is the same. We get that from China. The Chinese are stripping the shelves bare and hoarding it. Therefore, there's not enough to ship to the United States. Therefore, our shelves are now bare. So somebody says, well, how can a public policy decision in Beijing affect whether I can get ibuprofen for my kid in you know, Portland, Oregon? The answer is it does, and it works exactly the way I just described. So yeah, some alleviation, some parts of the supply chain, yes, but new problems emerging all the time. And that's what happens with complex dynamic systems. They, um, the, there's basically a domino effect and, and the, the impact goes from one area to the other. So the supply chain situation is still a mess. It will remain so. Um, new problems are, some old problems have been solved, but new problems are emerging all the time. So the book is more timely than ever, and this is gonna persist. Talk about, if you would, um, talk about that transition then, like the forces behind the transition to, um, you know, the, the inflation that we have, what the Fed is doing about it, and also, uh, you know, this transition into, I guess, a not necessarily deflationary, but, uh, you know, de- rapidly decreasing inflation. Um, like, how, how does that happen? And if you could talk about the pressures that, that will ultimately create that scenario. Sure. Let's go back to uh, Jay Powell and the Fed being on a path to crush inflation. So they're running the Volcker playbook right now. Now, Jay Powell has given four speeches in recent um, uh, last few months, August 26th at Jackson Hole, September 21st at uh, following an FOMC meeting in Washington, Federal Open Market Committee, uh, November 2nd, another FOMC meeting in Washington, and November uh, 30th, at the Brookings Institution. And he's got another one uh, coming up with December 14th, another FOMC meeting. So that'll be five speeches altogether. He said the same thing every time. He said, inflation is job one. We're going to crush it. We're not going to stop until we do. Um, Unfortunately, we're going to be in a recession. He has not used the R word. He can't, but you don't need a Dakota ring to understand he's saying there's going to be a recession and unemployment is going to go way up. And he's kind of like too bad about about the employment recession, but that's the price of getting inflation under control. And if we don't, the inflation gets worse, the price is gonna be even higher. So whatever pain you feel right now, sorry about that, but uh, we're trying to prevent something worse. We gotta get the inflation in a box. And that's what he's doing. Now, they going back to March, 2022, on March 1st, 2022, interest rates were zero. The Fed policy mm-hmm. rate was zero. Yeah. Right now they're four and a quarter. There's gonna be 50 basis point hike on December 14th. That's going to get it to four and uh, three quarters. 
I the next meeting we have the 2023 calendar. It's on a secret. It's on the Fed website. The next meeting is February 1st. The one after that is March 22nd. I expect Jay Powell to raise rates another 50 basis points, not 75, but 50 on February 1st, and perhaps 25 basis points on March 22nd. So we got three more rate hikes coming. December 14th, February 1st, March 22nd. That's going to take the Fed funds policy rate, uh, Fed funds target rate to five and a half. So from zero, March 1st, 2022 to five and a half by March 2023. That's Volcker country. I mean, that's um, Volcker was dealing at higher levels, but five and a half percent in one year. That's that's crazy. There's rarely been anything like it. Along that lines, are you surprised, Jim, that we haven't, you know, the employment numbers are actually surprisingly good still like it just seems like uh the nine months and five percent you would expect uh, there would be you know some effect on the labor markets now are you surprised about that uh, no for a couple of reasons number one labor uh conditions are a lagging indicator they're not a leading indicator so when you're an employer a small business you're running a restaurant or a dry cleaner or you know whatever um the last thing you want to do is lay off workers you will if you have to but that's the last thing you do you cut expenses you you know you don't get bonuses you uh you know argue with your vendors whatever it takes and then when you're desperate and the recession's kicked in and your business really is hanging by a thread, that's when you lay off workers. So number one, it's a lagging indicator. Number two, it's completely misleading. And this is why the Fed always gets it wrong. I'll explain in a minute why they're getting it wrong again. But they use these this Phillips curve, which is uh, says there's an inverse relationship so between unemployment and inflation. So low unemployment can mean higher inflation. High unemployment can mean lower inflation. So this inverse relationship and you're right that the, the unemployment rate is 3.7 percent which is low historically you have to go back to the 1960s to find uh unemployment rates like that so the fed says well that must mean inflation is still strong so we have to keep raising rates first of all the phillips curve is junk science it's worse than climate change science which is complete junk um the last time i looked at a phillips curve you know you can plot it out it's just a bunch of numbers it was flat. Like where I went to school, the curves weren't flat. They were curved. But um, it's, it doesn't work at all. And the missing ingredient, if you will, is the, and you see this in the labor force participation rate. So the way it is to be unemployed, to be counted as unemployed, of course, you don't have a job, but you have to be looking for a job. You have to show up at the unemployment office or go online or you go to on a job interview, make some effort to find a job, and then you're counted as unemployed. If you're just sitting home eating Doritos, watching the you know World Cup or whatever, you're and you're not looking for a job, they don't count you as unemployed. You are unemployed, but they don't count you. Now, how big is that cohort? The answer is eight to ten million people who are not who are in the labor force, but they're not counted as unemployed because they're not looking. If you put those people in the unemployment calculation, the rate would be like more like eight or nine percent, and that is recession level rates of unemployment. So, and look, some of it's legitimate. Some of those people are homemakers. Some are early retirees. Some are students. They're, they're perfectly good reasons not to be looking for a job, but not 10 million people. I mean, that's, that's a huge number. So, um, so, so two things are wrong. Uh, number one, unemployment's a lagging indicator. It's starting to go up now. Uh, it'll go up a lot worse, but that's probably because the recession is already here. And number two, it doesn't count, um, 
upwards of 10 million Americans who just aren't looking for jobs. But you do see that in the labor force participation rate, which has been coming down, meaning a smaller percentage of the total labor force is either working or looking for a job. So that that unemployment rate is a very misleading number. I'm not saying they cook the books. I mean, I'm sure they calculate it correctly. I'm just saying it doesn't mean what the Fed thinks it means. And they're missing the, the the black hole in the whole thing, which is this large group who are just not looking for for work. Uh, and then I, I think expect unemployment to go up from here. So you see, um, obviously, this this can't uh, persist and will probably end up in a fairly deep recession based on what's going on now, correct? Yes, mainly because of the Fed's blind spot, which we just talked about. So um so what is what is Jay Powell looking for? Where is he going to? When is he going to stop raising rates? Well, he doesn't know. I think five and a quarter, five and a half percent is a good estimate. But um, he's he's sort of like Ahab looking for the white whale, and like a Moby Dick. He, he's looking for what they call the terminal rate. So what's the terminal rate? No one knows what. The, I don't know. Powell doesn't know. Uh, he's like a Potter Stewart. You know, he'll, he'll know it when he sees it. But the definition of the terminal rate, it's a, a Fed funds target rate that's high enough to bring inflation down on its own without further rate hikes. Mm. So we've taken it to the point where inflation, we don't have to do anything. We just have to pause and wait and inflation will come down on its own because we've reached the terminal rate. And that does not mean that interest rates have to be higher than inflation. They don't, they just have to be high enough to make inflation come down on its own. And that's what Powell is looking for. And right now he thinks it's five and a quarter, five and a half, and he'll get there in March. What if, and I think this is the case, by the way, and um, Wall Street's kind of saying the same thing, although I diverge from them on other matters. What if they're already at the term, the terminal rate? What if they're there and inflation is coming down? And by the way, the last couple of months, inflation has come down. It's still too high. I'm not wishing it away. Um, and they need it to come down more. But the fact that it's starting to come down on its own suggests that they're at the terminal rate. They just don't know it. So if they keep going, this is like, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and not realizing he's off the cliff. If Powell raises three more times, which I expect, but they're already at the terminal rate, that means they're going to go way too high, uh, strangle the the money, uh, uh, have monetary tightening that's way too strong, and throw the economy into a severe recession, which is what I see coming. Now, here's where, now Wall Street's saying something similar but not exactly the same. Wall Street's kind of saying, hey, you know, inflation is coming down. Growth is slowing. Maybe you are at the terminal rate. Uh, and that's a good thing because you'll hold off on that March increase, maybe not even do the February increase. You'll cut rates by March. This is the famous pivot, you know, pivot to rate cuts. Um, that'll ease monetary conditions. Um, we'll have a soft landing. Goldilocks ending, and so buy stocks. I mean, Wall, Wall Street always ends up everything with yes. by saying buy, buy stocks, right. you know. But so, so they've got this, yeah, yeah. The rate the Powell's at the rate at the terminal rate. Rates, uh, inflation is coming down. Lilies up, soft landing. Goldilocks buy stocks. Here's where I diverge. I think I would agree with Wall Street that we probably are at the terminal rate. That's probably true. Inflation is coming down. It's in the data. You don't have to debate it. You can see it coming down. But um, but Powell's going to keep raising rates. He's not going to get the memo. And this is going to throw us into a severe recession. It's not going to be a soft landing. It's going to be a crash landing. Um, and Goldilocks is going to get eaten by the bears. So that's a very different outcome than Wall Street expects. They're, they both start from the same place, which is that the Fed's already there. Rates are high enough. They shouldn't go higher. 
but Wall Street says he'll get he'll get the message, ease off, you know, live happily ever after. My view is he will not get the message. He'll keep tightening. The Fed may pivot by June or July. They may lower rates by June or July. I don't think that's a stretch, but not for good reasons. They'll do it because we're in a severe re- uh, recession, severe contraction, unemployment soaring, stocks are down 30%, and the Fed's like, oh, gee, it looks like we made a mistake, better cut rates. So they will cut them, but they don't see that now, and it'll be for all the wrong reasons, which is we'll be in a severe recession. What is your timeline for all this? Because uh, you mentioned potentially the uh, Fed could be in a position by June. So we're only going to talk about six, seven months here. Um, do you think that, uh, as, you, as you've as you kind of alluded to, we're in a recession now, and then those numbers come back, and that in itself maybe slows the, the, the Fed down with rates, and then, you know, they've, they've had this nine months of raising rates without waiting to see if it actually does anything. Um, and then they're in this big recession, and, that's when they reverse the rates and they actually start coming down. And you think that's all in six, seven months? Um, yes, but the damage will be done. And I was they to say that the Fed will pivot in June is is um, uh, is not an encouraging sign because what it means is that they held on too long, raised them too high. We're in a severe recession. Okay, yeah, yeah, got a recession. They're going to cut rates. That's obvious. But um, but it'll be too late. They will have already caused the severe recession. So that's where I don't see that as a as a so called soft landing. And there's a reason for that. You got to get in Jay Powell's head a little bit here. Why won't Jay Powell see it? Why won't Jay Powell pivot the way Wall Street wants him to? Why will he persist in driving off the cliff? This goes back to 1980, something called the Volcker mistake. And recall, Paul Volcker became Fed chair in 1979. Inflation was already out of control. He started raising rates immediately and raised them pretty significantly in 1980 and was on the path that we're talking about, the one Jay Powell's on now. But 19, middle of 1980, we had a severe recession. It seemed to come out of nowhere. It had nothing to do with Volcker or the Fed or monetary policy. It was a regulatory screw up by the Carter administration. They put a cap on credit card interest rates and the bank said, okay, well, we'll get out of the credit card business if we can't make any money. Um, and that caused a severe credit contraction. Um, and then the economy plunged. Now it got so bad that farmers across America they were driving tractors and front loaders and they surrounded the Fed. They started driving tractors up the steps of the Federal Reserve. Congress was up in arms. People wanted to burn Paul Volcker in effigy uh, and Volcker blinked because the, the recession came out of nowhere. It was bad and the protests were so bad. Volcker cut interest rates seven percentage points, not seven, 70 basis points, seven percentage points from a pretty high level uh-huh. because of this recession. That was a huge blunder for a couple of reasons. Number one, the recession was over very quickly. It never did have anything to do with monetary policy, but the job, the the fight against inflation was not over. And when Volcker cut rates, inflation took off again and went even higher. And that's when in, in, in 1981, he had to raise interest rates to 20% and he caused a second recession, the second in two years, that was the worst recession since the Great Depression. So Volcker looked back on that and said, that I, I blinked. I, I never should have done that. I should have kept raising rates, recession or no recession. Just keep going till the job's done. Now, that's economic history, but Powell knows that. Powell does not want to be that guy. He does not want to be the guy who blinks, the guy who balks, cuts rates too early, then inflation takes off, and he's got to raise them even higher, and he's repeating the Volcker mistake. 
So, um, and, and the, the difference is that um, in Volcker's case, going back to what we said earlier, the inflation was coming from the demand side. Today, the inflation is coming from the supply side. You really can crush it if you raise rates high enough. We see it already with mortgage rates and monthly payments going up and housing prices start to go down immediately. So, uh, but Powell doesn't want to repeat the Volcker mistake. He's going to persist you know, and, and until inflation starts to come down a lot more, but when it does, it'll be, a, it'll be, it'll have a life of its own. It'll be because we're in a recession, the damage will be done. And at that point, even a pivot, meaning a rate cut in June, 2023, which is entirely possible will be too little too late. We'll already be in the recession. Fascinating stuff, Jim. I know you, uh, I know you are off to London here for the book launch. Uh, the book is out here. It's called Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. Uh, if you have not read a Jim Rickards book, I highly encourage it. Uh, he's a great speaker, obviously, but a tremendous writer as well, by the way, Jim, I have to say. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Jim, for being on the show, and, and, um, and good luck to you. Thank you, Mark. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, I want to wish you all a wonderful new year. Hopefully you make some good New Year's resolutions that you can actually stick to. I think I've got a few myself. And uh, anyway, have a good time. And hopefully we'll meet again soon in 2023. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.